The book of Hebrews is intended to be a sermon to encourage Christians to not give up on their faith during difficult times. And if you remember, as we looked at those first three verses from Hebrews 1 a month ago, we saw the author declaring that God had spoken through His Son, no longer through messengers and parts and pieces, but now a once-for-all message from the Son in these last days, that the Son is the heir of all things. He created the world. He is the radiance of God, the exact imprint of His very being and sustains the world by His powerful Word. And with all of that in mind, He draws to the point in verse 3 saying, after making purification for sins, that He sits down at the right hand of God. And now notice how the rest of that goes in verse 4. Having become as much more superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, there's a lot that was just said in that last sentence. And if you're like me, you've probably read that last sentence and thought, wow, I really don't understand a whole lot about what this is going to say. Especially because if you scan ahead in the rest of this chapter, it seems like a flurry of quotations to prove the thing that says, well, Jesus is superior than angels. All right, we got that. Do we really need a whole page about that? Yes, we do. I'm going to show you why that is the case. There are two things that are stated there in verse 4 that are really critical to grasping about who Jesus is and having a full understanding of Him. And I want to pose these as questions as we begin. Number one, why is it that Jesus, if you notice, has, has become superior to angels that well he just is by nature how did he become superior to angels that's a challenging declaration to which the rest of the text these quotations is making that point why would he say it like that we'll talk about that and then the second part of this statement that's made here in verse 4 of inheriting a name that is more excellent than theirs. Why make such a big deal that Jesus is superior than angels? Why do we need seven Old Testament quotations to just simply say Jesus is superior to angels? We'll answer that as well. And then when we come around to the very end, we'll see why this matters so much to our faith today. All right, let's start with the beginning point in talking about the comparison to angels. Now, if you remember last month as we started this study of Hebrews, we made a point about the problem and error of mere reading. That what we have the tendency to do sometimes is because the author of the Scripture speaks about something, we say, well, then they must have had a problem with it. And so the tendency of chapter 1 is to say, well, clearly the recipients thought angels were greater than Jesus, even though somehow they're Christians. And so therefore we had to do this whole thing to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus is superior to angels. Nonsense. Do not fall into the error of mere reading. Just because an author declares a point and emphasizes it, 
doesn't mean that the audience had a problem with it. I hope you recognize that by the vast majority of my sermons. That just because I'm preaching to you about something doesn't mean I think you all have a problem with it. We're talking about here's something important that God has to say. In fact, I would rather state to you that it is quite the opposite of what the author is trying to make. In not only Jewish understanding, but also Christian understanding, as well as I would argue perhaps it's been this way for nearly all time, there has always been a high regard for angels. It seems that we are often fascinated by angels. We are approaching the time of year where angels come back into the forefront as Christmas, where we now see them as naked babies with wings blowing trumpets hanging on trees. We we just start thinking about angels, and we always have this high, high regard for angels, and some of it is because we have a lot of mystery about them. Not a lot is said about them. And so Christians have had a high regard for it. The Jewish people had a high regard for it. Even society has a high regard for angels. That's always been the case. And the author of Hebrews is using that. In fact, not only is he using that high regard, remember the scriptures held angels in high regard. We read places like in Galatians 3 and Acts 7 where we find out that the Old Testament didn't tell us this. That in fact the law of Moses was delivered by angels from God to Moses. Now you didn't see that in Exodus. But Stephen comes along and the Apostle Paul comes along and says, yes, that's exactly what happened. And then you have things like Daniel 10. And we don't have the time to talk about Daniel 10. But Daniel 10 is certainly fascinating where you see an angel dealing with a wicked angel. And that angel's not strong enough and goes and gets a stronger angel to deal with this wicked angel. There's always been a high regard for angels. They've always been considered in high esteem. And even in the scriptures, they are upheld that way. The point is not to say, now I want to make sure you don't misunderstand. And I know you have a low view of Jesus and he's greater than angels. But to hold that high regard for angels, don't denigrate in your mind who angels are and the work that they do. They are messengers of God. They are servants of God. They delivered the law of Moses. We see them doing amazing things in behalf of God. And the whole point is hold that in your mind. Now Jesus is way superior to them. Take the high regard that you have for angels and exponentially increase it when you think of the Son. He is far, far superior to the high elevation and regard to angels that you have. That is what is being established here as he opens this. is not to try to bring angels down, hold angels high, and now push Jesus beyond that. Well beyond that, far past that in terms of his superiority. And this is what verse 4 is getting at when it says in verse 4, He having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
The point that is being declared here is that the Son has received a superior status. And that's what verse 4 then is getting at. He has inherited a name that is more excellent and that He became superior to angels. Now, on the surface, we might read that and go, now, how can you say that? Is it the Son by His very nature superior to angels? And the answer is, of course, yes. That's not the argument that He wants to make, though. He wants to push the point further. Yes, you hold the Son in high regard because of His nature. The first three verses of chapter 1 establish that. He created all things. All things are made through Him. He sustains it by His very Word. Of course His nature is makes Him vastly superior. But He wants to give you another characteristic. And that is the name The name that He has, the name that He has inherited is vastly superior when considered in regard to angels. Notice that it doesn't say that He was given the name or that He received the name, but He inherited the name. The idea is that the Son possesses this name, this title by right, Not by a favor, not by, well, I'm just going to give you this. I'm granting it to you as if it were a gift. No, it is inherited. He deserves it. Now, when you think of these kinds of things, it is important to try to put ourselves in ancient Near Eastern thinking. Because when we talk about a son, we just kind of go, a child. There's not a whole lot that carries along with the name of son to us. We at most will probably say he's a chip off the old block and he's got some of the same characteristics perhaps. And we will speak of it like that. In ancient Near Eastern times, if you are the son, though, you possess power, you possess privilege You possess right and place. You're the next in line. You're the next up. You're the one that's going to take over the family leadership and the family role. And you do not possess that by gift, but by right. You inherit that. That is the idea of what God is trying to use here in this picture of why the Son is superior. While angels have been granted a status, you are my servants, you are my messengers, you are carrying out my tasks, the Son has inherited and possesses a status not only by His nature, first three verses, but also by his position, his title, son. It is a huge statement about who Jesus is in terms of his position and place and power and might. 
Not just simply because He is God, but because He has been stated to be the Son. It is an exalted status. It is a name that is greater than angel, messenger, or servant. He possesses something that is far greater. And that's what verses 5 through 13 are all about, is that these are quotations that are emphasizing why the name Son is superior for His status, and superior in who He is. For example, notice in verse 5, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. Now, ESV uses, today I have begotten you. I like some of the other ones that say, today I have become your father. Because begotten for us in English makes us think of physical birth. And that's not the idea. There again is a picture of elevated status here. To which of any spiritual being, to which of the heavenly creatures, did God ever bestow the status and name Son, none of them, but to Jesus, it has been bestowed that elevated status, the Son. And the reason why that's important is because now think of it again in ancient Near Eastern times and don't be the average common person, be the king. And what did it mean to have a son? He's the next king. He's next in line. He has inherited a status that he possesses. Even kind of see that a little bit in monarchy today somewhat. There is even in England an attempt somewhat of this inherited status that they possess because they were born there is what we use for our physical lineage. Well, that's not a physical lineage here, but notice of declaration. Here God says, to which of anyone did he ever say, that's my son? And see, this is what makes this so powerful in the New Testament. When we saw in Mark chapter 1 at the baptism of Jesus, we saw that the heavens open and the voice from heaven says what? You are my beloved son. Declaration of status. Declaration of who he is. We're almost there in Mark. Notice that will happen again at the transfiguration. The status is declared again. This is my son. This is the chosen one. He possesses special status. He is a right that is above all else. And then the New Testament comes along and tells us at the resurrection of Jesus, that declared status becomes reality. I love Romans 1, 3 through 4, where it tells us that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God at the resurrection from the dead. What you have in the life of Jesus is God constantly establishing, saying, I want you to understand that's the Son, that's the Son, that's the Son. He has the high status, the power, the privilege, the rights. And then at the resurrection, it's proven. 
And thus you see Acts 2, what happens? He sits down at the right hand of God. Is now he takes on what has been declared to him and now begins his reign as king and rules over the nations and begins to do that very role that was declared to him earlier. This is all that this quotation is trying to do is say a status had been declared upon him. This has nothing to do with physical birth. It has nothing with saying, well, Jesus was nothing and then he became something and later inherited it. It is all about status. Think of it in terms of king and son. And he has that special title, son. Thus, he inherits all things. He now rules over all things and sits on the throne. The rest of verse 5, the second quotation, pretty well confirms that very idea. You might remember in 2 Samuel 7, you have there this prophecy in declaring that a descendant of David is going to build a house for God and that descendant is going to have a father and son relationship. And so notice when it says there at the end of verse 5, so who is God ever going to say, I will be a father to him and he will be son. Notice again, status is being declared. Do you elevate Jesus to the level of the high status of son? Just as an interesting aside, you you kind of think about for a minute. We take the title, the name son, son of God. And we probably miss all of the power of what that's doing. We, we probably conform that into our own physical lineage. Okay, father, and then we go down one son, right? And that's not the idea. That's not the idea of all. It is of elevated status. The son of the king has all rights, power, privilege, position, and is going to rule on that throne. And Jesus does that at the resurrection. The writer of Hebrews is putting his finger on that and saying, that's what you have. Angels are this high, but Jesus has a status as son far beyond. We won't spend as much time in the rest of the quotations, but I just want you to see in these quotations the emphasis that continues to be laid upon that. Like in verse 6, and again when he brings the firstborn into the world. Just stop there for a moment because there's another phrase that gets distorted by religious groups and firstborn as if that's lower or created or physically born or something like that. But again, being firstborn means preeminent. If you're the firstborn son in ancient Near Eastern times, what did that mean for you? You had all kinds of blessings and privileges. You had a status that was above all the other children. You were going to get a double portion of the inheritance. You were going to become the family leader. It is a status that is being declared. And so is verse 6 then. So when he brings the firstborn into the world, what does he say? That status is laid on him. By the way, don't forget how special it was then when God calls Israel his firstborn son. And he says, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Israel possesses that special status before God. 
They are to be the firstborn. They have the rights and the privileges above the nations and what they are enjoying in that status. That's what firstborn represents. Therefore, the quotation in verse 6, guess what? The firstborn son is worthy of worship. Even the angels are called upon to worship Him. By the way, so what would that mean of us? Even spiritual beings are told, let them all bow down and worship Him. Because of His status. Because of who He is. Because He's the Son. And therefore, that is to be the response, really, of all creation. Verse 7, notice the lesser role of angels. Of the angels, he says, he makes the angels winds and his ministers flame of fire. Again, that's not a denigration, but a recognition of their elevated status. They are messengers. They are ministers. They are servants. He uses them in that way. It is intended to draw a contrast. Angels are put into God's service. But verse 8, but of the Son, he says... Your throne, O God. To angels, he says, get to work. Do my bidding. Go out. Do my tasks. Be my servants. Be my messengers. But to the Son, he says, your throne. You rule. You reign. It is again a picture of an infinitely higher status your throne O god is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness therefore god your god has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions you are of elevated status you have a throne he is called god and he reigns from that throne in uprightness with a scepter loving righteousness and then go a little bit further verse 10 this is what he says of the son as well you Lord laid the foundation of the earth at the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands by the way we saw that back in verse 2 that he is appointed as heir of all things and through whom he also created the world reestablished right here his nature is clearly God no one is dealing with that problem of saying well it's not because of who he is it is because of who he is but also because of status look at verse 11 They will perish, speaking of the creation, but you remain. By the way, does that mean he's a created God? All creation will perish. You roll them up and cast them aside like a robe. You remain forever. So verse 12, like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. The sun is eternal. Again, an elevation of status. Do you understand who he is? All creation is temporary, but the sun remains forever. He will always remain. He will always be. And thus you have a quotation in verse 13, a common quotation in the New Testament in regards to the enthronement and kingship of Jesus. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He said that to none but the Son. 
So this is what is being emphasized is look at who Jesus is in contrast. Verse 14, in speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So here is your high elevated status and honor and regard for angels way up here, right where it belongs. Hold it right there. And then here the author says, by the way, they're just servants. They're just used by God for the task given to them. But of the son, he says, status of son, status of firstborn, status of all angels worship him, status of all creation worships him, status of creation is not eternal, but he himself will roll them up like a scroll. They'll be changed like a garment. They'll be cast aside because the son remains forever. Now, so what? Because you read all that, and I think what's often we do with the first chapter of Hebrews is we read through all that and go, all right, I've got it. Okay, the sun's great. Two things. Number one, how easy is it for us to lose our awe of Jesus? Why is the writer doing this? If the whole point is just, I want you to know that Jesus is greater than angels, you can use a line, make our Bibles a little bit thinner, and just go ahead and say, Jesus is greater than angels. That's not the point. The point is, I do not want you to lose your awe and respect and jaw-dropping astonishment of who Jesus is. And so thus the quotations. He possesses this by his nature. He possesses this by his status. He has this because of the name he has inherited. He is far superior because he is the firstborn. Do not lose your awe of who Jesus is. Have you noticed that familiarity and repetition breed boredom and contempt? Right? The more you have the tendency to be around something and do something, the more you go, whatever. Something that was absolutely enthralling and amazing the first time, after a year or so, becomes eh. And after a few more years, it becomes whatever. And after a few more times, it probably becomes mindless repetition. You just kind of do it. This is something that the writer of Hebrews does not want them to have happen. He does not want them to lose their awe of Jesus. And that is easy to do for a Christian because we are exposed to it and he becomes familiar to us. And so what happens when we get to the Lord's table? We lose our awe of what it's all about. And it becomes, let's get a stack that's, you know, up to the ceiling so we can see if we can get it done in about 10 to 15 seconds. And we'll just blow right through it and get it done so we can move on and get this thing done as fast as possible. We turn it into habit, ritual, 
Let's just do this. Let's just get the bread by. Let's get the juice down. Keep it going. We lose all of what it's about. It is fascinating that God has given us all of these markers and memorials and reminders and acts of discipleship as a way for us not to lose our awe. And unfortunately, we have those things cause us to not to then lose our awe, like the memorial. The more memorial is given to us every week so that we would never lose our awe of Jesus and what happens at the memorial. Familiarity breeds contempt. And we just hurry it along. Or what happens with prayer? You know you're talking to God. Isn't that crazy? That's just nuts that we can do that. But familiarity breeds contempt. And we lose our all of that and just go, oh, whatever, you know, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, can we get on with our merry day? We lose our all. Think about how many things there are like that. This is God's spoken word that is to give you life. Amen. And we lose our all of that. And we don't touch it. We don't care. And just sits on the sideline and we dust it off every Sunday, pull it out of the trunk of the car. We lose our awe. Why is the writer of Hebrews going on and on and on and on like that? Because that's exactly what we do. We turn this into, let's get together on Sunday. Let's hurry up, preacher. Let's get this done and over with. And back to our schedules and back to our life. And we lose awe of our salvation. We lose awe of the sacrifice. We lose awe of the memorial. We lose awe of a prayer life. We lose awe in our singing. We lose awe in everything as it turns into simply duty, habit, responsibility, and obligation. Do not let Jesus do that in your life. Do not lose your awe. Which is, he gives us a help then, number two, of why all this is here. Verse one of chapter two. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We must pay more careful attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How do we drift? Think about it in a physical sense. If you're a boater, think about how you drift. If you like to ride waves, uh, think about how drifting happens. I don't do much boogie boarding now because the waves here stink. California, uh, lots of stuff to ride out there. And you go out into the water, you have your board, you're looking at the waves, you're working your whole way out there, and you're focused, your back is to the shore, and you're focused on the waves. And you're looking at the waves, waiting for the good one, and you get paddled out there and you're tired and you lay on your board and you're kind of resting. And you catch a wave and you look back behind you and you have no idea where your chairs are. <laughs> you go, it just happened. <laughs> you had no idea that there was a current that was pulling you one way or another. And the only way you knew was not because you could feel it, unless it's like really bad, like a rip current. You just turned around and looked and went, whoa, I'm like 100 feet down the shoreline. 
that's what happens with drifting. Is what happens with drifting is that you lose the reference point of what you're supposed to be looking at and you stop striving. Uh, every time I'd be out there in the ocean, I'd start drifting down. And so I'd go, oh man, I'm way down. My parents are going to completely freak out because they can't hardly see me anymore. And so I'll start paddling back to get back in front of where they're sitting. And I'd paddle, paddle, paddle and get all the way back to there. I'd be just dead exhausted from all the paddling. I'm like, all right, I'm back in front of them again. And I'd lay on the board. And what would happen? <laughs> right back down again. And this time I could even watch myself do it. I'd look and watch as I'm going to the shore all the way down. There's two things that have to happen. You have to have a reference point and you have to not stop striving. You have to keep paddling. If you stop in your boat with the motor, what's going to happen? Drift along. If you stop paddling, what's going to happen? You're going to drift. Notice that's what he says in verse 1. You must pay careful attention. You need to focus on Jesus. He is your spiritual reference point. If you lose awe of Him, if you lose sight of Him, if you lose regard for Him and are not constantly paddling toward Him, you're drifting. You're drifting. And here's the scary thing about drifting. You have no idea it's happening until you turn around and look. You think you're right at where you were when you put the boat in the water or right where you were when you walked in the ocean. And you're not. And you don't know until you look around and go, whoa, we're not where we used to be. But all the while, you think you're right where you ought to be. That is my challenge for you this morning. Is to take a spiritual look around within your life and see are you where you ought to be spiritually or have you been looking at something else and you've drifted have you lost your awe for the son is he not everything to your life is everything else in life or other things in life your focal point your high regard and your desire. And little do you know, while you focus on the cares and the concerns and the desires of this life, as you're looking out here, you are drifting and drifting and drifting. And the longer you keep looking at something besides Jesus, you're drifting further and further away. Take a spiritual evaluation of yourself this morning, please, my brothers and sisters. And look to Jesus as your spiritual reference point. And ask yourself, have you been floating along spiritually and not striving toward Him as you know that you can and should? And now suddenly you are far down the waterway more than you ever thought before. Now suddenly you have drifted so far away. And that's why I love that word drifting. You didn't intend to swim all the way down there. You just floated down there. You were just doing your thing and you were fine with God and everything was all right. And you turned around and went, whoa. Therefore, 
Verse 1. We must pay more careful attention to what we have heard. Notice that that's the therefore of verses 5 through 14 of chapter 1. Here is the awe of Jesus, the Son of God. Now you need to pay careful attention and have that awe or you'll drift away. The book of Hebrews is a book of encouragement. It is a book to help us so that we will not lose our faith, but to continue to the path of salvation, the path of righteousness. What an important beginning that he has is do you see how high and lofty Jesus ought to be to our lives? And have you lost that awe for him? If you have, will you please make a change today? You know you need to have an awe for him, a continuing love for him, a desire for him, an amazement for him that overwhelms everything else in this life. It is everything to your life. And that is what we need to consider for ourselves. Is our life focus on Jesus? Or has there been drifting? And have we been looking at something else? Has something else caught our eye? Please, please, please adjust course now. It's not too late. Get Jesus back to your focal point. And strive for Him. Start loving Him as you know you should. Follow Him and serve Him as you can. And paddle toward the Savior with all of your might. Can we help you do that? The only way we can help you do that, we want you to be a follower of Him. And we're here for that encouragement. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, would you turn away from your sins? Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and establish Him as that focal point in your life today. Can we help you do that once you come while we stand and while we sing?